In chapter 1, verse 10 of this letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul started confronting the problem of division in the church of Corinth. So there, back in chapter 1, verse 10, he wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. The divisions in that church were the result of unhealthy allegiances to certain leaders. I follow Paul, some said. I follow Apollos, others said. I follow Cephas, others said. Some, the super spiritual, even said, I follow Christ. And this dividing up, it was not a matter of choosing good leaders over bad leaders. That's an important thing. It was not a matter of choosing true teachers over false teachers. That must be done. But these were all good teachers. These were all true teachers. The Corinthians were divided up and exalting their favorite leader at the expense of another. So they were boasting in some leaders and they were judging other leaders. They were taking pride in some leaders, but then looking down on others. And so Paul called this in chapter 1, verse 29 and 31, boasting in men. That's what that is. It is boasting in men. And he'll describe it another way in this chapter, chapter 4, verse 6, as being puffed up in favor of one against another. So it is this boasting in men, it is this puffed up in favor of one leader against another that was splintering the church at Corinth. So, Paul's going to give this issue one more chapter. He's been addressing it ever since chapter 1. So one more chapter, chapter 4, and then he will move on to the next problem. And in this chapter, Paul is going to explain to the Corinthians how they should view and respond to their leaders, including men like Paulo and Apollos. So in this chapter, Paul is going to explain to the Corinthians how they should view these leaders and how they should respond to these leaders. They should not be boasted in. Paul has made that clear in chapter 3, verse 21. And they should not be divided over. So how then should the church view and respond to these leaders? So that is the question that Paul begins to answer in our text today. And this sermon like every sermon, is rooted in this Word of God. And in this book, in this Word of God, we learn the bad news of who we are, and we learn the good news of who God is. We learn the Gospel. 
we learn that we are great sinners and that God is a great Savior. We learn what God has done to rescue us from ourselves. Because this book is so important. Because the preaching of God's word is so important. We need to pray together before I preach this sermon. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, sharpen our minds, soften our hearts, and embolden our wills. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own a Bible, you will find today's text on page 619. How should the church view and respond to these leaders, to these ministers that they had? How should we view ministers in the church? How should we respond to them? That is the question before us. I've decided to divide this sermon into four headings. So we'll be working through this text under four headings. Heading number one is this, the regarding of a minister. So look with me at verse one. This is how one should regard us. Us refers to Paul and Apollos and Kephas. That is made clear in the verses just before. If you looked at chapter 3 at the end in verses 22 and 23. These men were leaders in Corinth. They were ministers in Corinth. First Paul, and then Apollos, and at some point, Kephas or Peter. Likewise, in our church here, though many of you may lead and minister, we have three official leaders or three official ministers, myself and Greg Baltzer and Jeff Cassinelli. You know us as pastors or elders or overseers. Because those words are used synonymously in the New Testament. So the us in verse 1 refers to Corinth's ministers. To their church leaders. And remember those men to their disappointment are at the center of division in this church. And so Paul just made it very clear. That the Corinthians are not to boast in these men. In other words, they are not to pridefully prefer one over another. So then how should they view these ministers? How should they view these leaders? And that's the question he's answering. So again, verse 1. This is how one should regard us. And he gives two titles. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul has described his ministry in, in many different ways so far in this letter. He is a servant through whom they believed, according to chapter 3, verse 5. He was a 
preacher of the gospel, according to chapter 1, verse 17. And he was a skilled master builder, according to chapter 3, verse 10. But Paul boils all that down in this text and says, this is how you should regard us. And first, ministers should be regarded as servants of Christ. Ministers should be regarded as servants of Christ. The Greek word here for servant originally meant under rower. Under rower. And it referred to a servant down in the bottom part of a ship rowing alongside other rowers. And so Paul is saying, regard me as an under rower of Christ. So a minister is not the captain of the ship. A pastor is not the captain of the ship. He is to be regarded as an under rower, a servant of Christ. Second, ministers should be regarded as stewards of the mysteries of God. This word for steward refers to the administrator or manager of an estate. It is the same word Jesus used in one of his parables in Luke chapter 16. There in verse 1 he said, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So, a steward was a person who was given an estate and then they were given responsibility over it to, to steward it, to manage it, to administrate it. So with that in mind, according to this verse, what is the estate that a minister has been given responsibility over? It's not, again, a church. He is not a steward of the church, a manager of the church, an administrator over the church. It's not over a group of people, but rather, what does the text say? The mysteries of God. A minister is a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, generally speaking, this refers to the word of God. Broadly speaking, this refers to the Bible. Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 7, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And we have learned that the wisdom of God is found alone in the Word of God. And the Word of God is a mystery. The Word of God is a mystery in the sense that it cannot be understood apart from revelation and illumination. So in order to understand God, in order to know God, the first thing that has to happen is revelation. God has to reveal Himself. We don't just figure God out, staring up into the stars. We have to have God reveal Himself to us. And He's revealed Himself to us through creation, sure, 
through his word primarily, through his son, Jesus Christ. So if we're going to know God, first we need revelation, but that's not it. Even after God reveals himself through creation, through his son, through his word, we still don't get it. We still don't understand it. We still miss it. We need illumination. We need God to send his Holy Spirit and then illuminate his revelation to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to shine a spotlight on his word, on his son, so that we can know him. Remember what Paul said in the same letter, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Verse 14. The natural person. And the natural person is someone who does not have the Holy Spirit. They might have revelation, but they don't have illumination. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. They're mysteries to him. They are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when Paul calls a minister a steward of the mysteries of God, he means primarily a steward of the word of God. But then specifically speaking, he is referring to the central message of the word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So Paul saw himself as a steward of the word of God and of especially the central message of the word of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is, listen, this is the role of a minister. This is how a minister, a pastor, is to be regarded. He is a servant of Christ. He is a steward of the mysteries of God. He oversees the administration of God's word. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles, you remember, appointed other leaders to address practical matters within the church so that they could, Acts 6-5, devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. A pastor teaches God's Word. Paul wrote in Acts 20, verse 26 and 27, Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't just preach what I wanted to preach. I didn't proof text. I didn't go crazy with topical sermons. I just stuck to the Bible and I presented to you, Paul is saying, the whole counsel of God. I didn't avoid what I didn't want to preach. I didn't avoid what would make you uncomfortable. I didn't avoid what might make you angry. I didn't avoid what might shrink the church. He had no business thinking about any of those things, but only to present wholly the Word of God. Why? Because he knew that he was regarded by God and should be regarded by others as a steward of the mysteries of God. 
to teach the Word of God. To teach the central message of the Word of God. The good news of the Gospel. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 says, Do your best, Paul writes to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Why? Don't be ashamed if you're doing this, he's saying, rightly handling the word of truth. John Calvin wrote, In other words, what the Lord has committed to their charge, that is, ministers, what the Lord has committed to their charge, they deliver over to men from hand to hand. The expression is not what they themselves might choose. It's really great as a pastor and as a minister. I don't have to think about what my job is. I don't have to think about what I should be teaching. I don't have to think about what I should be preaching. It's been put before me. And a minister's job is to rightly divide the word of truth. A minister's job is to preach the whole counsel of God. A minister's job is to be a steward of the mysteries of God. So this is the regarding of a minister. He is a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. So Veritas Church, this is how you should regard your pastors. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Aspiring elders in this church. Those of you men who would like to be and should like to be elders in this church. This is what you should aspire to be. A servant of Christ and a steward of His Word. For those of you who are aspiring to be pastors and to be church planters, this is what you must aspire to. To be a servant of Christ and a steward of the Word of God. Whatever else you're learning, whatever else you're being told, Whatever else you're aspiring to, it must be a distant second to this. You must be a servant of Christ. And you must be a steward of the mysteries of God. And for those of you who are not church leaders, remember, you are still ministers. You are still servants of Christ. You are still stewards of the mysteries of God. You are servants and stewards in your home. You are servants and stewards at your workplace. Who else would you serve other than Christ? What else would you steward other than the word of God? What else would you pass on? 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each, this is not just formal ministers, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, heading number two, the requirement of pastors. 
the requirement of pastors. Look at verse 2. Moreover, that word just means the rest or the remaining. Paul has more to say on this. That's good. That's good. Moreover, it is required of stewards. So what is the requirement of pastors? It is required of these stewards that they be found faithful. That is the requirement of a minister. A minister is to be found faithful. Now, this is really important. And this is one of the best lessons that I learned early on in ministry. Faithfulness is not the same thing as success. It is required here, we're told, that a minister is to be found faithful. In 21st century America, we tend to relate things like faithfulness to success. Because we're very, aren't we, as a culture, we're very success-driven. We're goal-oriented. We want to accomplish. We want to achieve. And there's not necessarily things wrong with that until we start to read Scripture in ways that we shouldn't. So when it comes to the requirement of a minister, there is a difference between faithfulness and success. Being loyal is another word for faithfulness. Being loyal is different and better than accomplishing things. Trustworthiness, which is another word for faithfulness. Trustworthiness is different and better than achievement. There's nothing wrong with achievement. There's nothing wrong with accomplishment. But do you know what's better? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. That's the reason we don't sing, great is thy achievements. <laughs> great is thy accomplishments. And his accomplishments are great. Namely, it is finished. Talk about checking something off the list. Something accomplished. Nothing greater than redemption on the cross of Jesus Christ. But we sing rightly, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy loyalty to your people and to your glory. Great is your trustworthiness. If anyone is worthy of trust, it is you, God. No one is worthy of trust compared to you, God. Great is thy faithfulness as well. What the world calls success is often the fruit of unfaithfulness. So this could be a dangerous connection that we make too hastily. Often, not always. Not always, but often what the world calls success is actually the fruit of unfaithfulness. And faithfulness is often often 
to our eyes, unsuccessful. Faithfulness, often to our eyes, doesn't produce the results that we want. Or maybe that it doesn't produce the results we want in the timing we want. We may be tempted, a minister may be tempted to go after success over faithfulness. Sometimes a church is large because it is unfaithful. Not always. Remember I said that. Sometimes a church is large because it is unfaithful. And sometimes a church is small because it is faithful. Not always. Not always. Stephen Lawson says, the bigger the church, the worse the sermon. This is a big church, by the way. I mean, this is not a mega church. Veritas is not a mega church. But in terms of churches, nationally speaking, this is a large church. I say that just so you don't think that I'm trying to make myself feel better. I know where he's going with this. We're the faithful ones. There are exceptions, and we know of some exceptions, but generally speaking, the bigger the church, the worse the sermon. And there is scripture to explain why. A minister's job is to be faithful, not successful. That is what he was saying in chapter 3, verse 7. A minister plants the seed, he waters the seed, but God gives it the growth. What is the growth? That's the success. So the success, the fruit, that is up to God. And you can't ensure that. No minister can ensure that. His job is not to try to ensure that. His job at the end of the day is to be faithful. And his goal is that he would be found faithful. So if a minister is being reviewed and evaluated in this church, in another church, in churches that you know about, if you're going to review a minister, and if you're going to evaluate a minister, he is to be reviewed and evaluated on the basis of faithfulness. And specifically, faithfulness to the gospel and the word of God. It doesn't matter how popular a minister is, how gifted he is, how eloquent he is, how many followers he has, how big his church building is, how big the membership is, how many degrees he has. God has a completely different standard. A pastor, a minister, is required to be a faithful steward of the word of God. For those of you who are not church leaders, isn't the same true for you? Isn't the same true for you? What does God require of you? Success or faithfulness? 
What does he require in your relationships? What does he require in your marriage? What does he require in your parenting? What does he require in your work? What does he require in your endeavors? What does he require of you? It is not success. We need that drilled into our heads. What he requires of you is faithfulness. He doesn't require your church to be a certain size. He doesn't require your friends to all come to Christ. He doesn't require you make sure that your co-workers become believers. He doesn't require that you make sure your children come to Christ. And if you're success-driven in any of those things, you will make a mess. You will make bad choices. You will say bad things, and you will do bad things. And in the end, it probably won't even accomplish what you are trying to accomplish. Your job neighbor, your job church member, your job friend, your job parent is to be faithful. And faithful primarily to the Word of God. And to trust Him with the success. With the results. With the growth. Number three. The judgment of a minister. Couldn't find an R word. The judgment of a minister. So let's move on to verses three and four. The requirement of a minister is to be found faithful, but found faithful by who? That's what this is about. To be found faithful by who? Who is the judge of that? Whether or not a, this minister is faithful. That's what verses 3 and 4 is about. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. And now here it is. It is the Lord who judges me. This is obviously what the Corinthians were doing. Look at verse 3. They were judging these ministers. This was part of the problem. They were picking one to boast in and another to judge. They were prematurely estimating and evaluating the value and effectiveness of a minister's work. He's a better minister. No, he's a better minister. I'm with Paul. No, I'm with Apollos. He's better at his job. He's more effective. He's producing more results. That's the boasting and that's the judging. They were anticipating the verdict of the Lord in regards to Paul's life and ministry. They were putting him under critical scrutiny. But Paul couldn't care less, is what he says in these verses. And wouldn't you like to not care less than you care now about other people's judgments? One saying is you'd worry a lot less about what other people think if you realized how seldom they did. <laughs> but that's not like a text. That's just a, a secondary little bonus. 
Paul doesn't care, though. He doesn't care. Remember, Paul is a servant of Christ. He doesn't say, I'm a servant of you, Corinthians. He says, primarily, ultimately, he's a servant of Christ. Christ is his master. That's what that means. The judgment of Christ is the only judgment Paul cares about. It's the only judgment he cares about. That's what he is saying in verse 3. Look again with me. But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In other words, public opinion did not matter to Paul. This is a massive problem for us. We should be tuned in. I don't know the reasons why, but the ingredients that are there today make this an enormous issue for us. Weighing too much, considering too much, worried too much, embarrassed too much by the opinions of others. The public opinion, Paul says, it did not matter to him. It's a very small thing. Opinions like 2 Corinthians 10.10, they said this about Paul. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. What's he saying here? It is a very small thing to me that you think that. That's fine that you think that. It's not a big deal. Paul is not saying that he's not affected by the judgments of others. That's not what he means. He's not stoic. He's not saying that he's not even hurt by the opinions and judgments of others. I'm sure he was. I think there's evidence he was affected by the judgments of others. He felt those judgments. He was maybe at times hurt by those judgments. He was a human being. But he's saying here, that he was not ultimately swayed by the judgments of others. It was a very small thing to Paul. Jeffrey Wilson says, Paul is saying that it matters little to him whether people pass a judgment on him or not. This does not mean that he was not hurt by their criticism, but that he was not moved by it. So it's been said, I think rightly, that a minister needs to have thick skin and a tender heart. And if a minister ever gets to a point where he has thin skin and a hard heart, he's in big trouble. He should probably find something else to do vocationally. He is a servant. A minister is a servant to the church, but the church is not his master. Christ is his master. He serves the church because Christ is his master. A minister doesn't serve the church because the church is his master. 
And so it's important, and it was true for Paul, that public opinion is a small thing to a minister. Over the years, by God's grace, he's given me opportunities to grow in this area. To hear things and to see things. To hear opinions ranging from he's not a good pastor to no joke. He's possessed by a demon. At the end of the day, a minister cannot be moved by public opinion. Not only was public opinion a small thing to Paul, what else does he say? So was private conscience. Not just what other people thought, but what he thought. That judgment also was a small thing to Paul. At the end of verse 3, he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Ha! I don't care what other people think. Listen, I don't care what anyone thinks. Seriously, I don't even care what I think. Thought pops into my head. That's stupid, Paul would say. That's crazy, Paul would say. That's not true, Paul would say. He'd just move on, I guess. It is a very small thing. I do not even judge myself. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself. In other words, there's no habitual sin. There's, there's nothing I don't think that I haven't repented of. But I am not thereby acquitted. He knows there still could be something. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul, ultimately, he does not care about the Corinthians' judgments or anyone else's judgments, not even his own judgments. Let me read you one more quote. This is from Leon Morris, and he says this, Often people think that they know exactly what their spiritual state is and just what their service for God has effected. That's the first part of his quote. I want you to think about that. Often, he says, people think, like me, maybe you, often people think they know exactly what their spiritual state is and just what their service for God has effected. And the result may depress beyond reason or exalt beyond measure. It's not a good place to go. It may depress beyond reason because I don't think I'm in a good state and I don't think I've had very much of an effect or it could exalt beyond reason. It's either pride or despair. I, I, I could go both ways. Depending on how effective I think I am, you think you are as a Christian or as a minister. Neither, he says, is relevant. That's what Paul's saying here. It is not the task of the servant to pass such judgments, not even on yourself, but rather to get on with the job of serving the Lord. What Paul is saying about himself, what this says to us is, stop thinking about it. Don't worry so much about the opinion of others. Don't worry so much about your own opinion of yourself. Get busy. It's all the distraction. It all keeps you from doing what you ought to be doing, which is what? Faithfulness. What would God have me do today? What would God have me say? And then being obedient. 
and faithful and loyal to Jesus Christ. So he is not going to be moved by public opinion or private conscience. He is concerned only with the judgment that comes from God. It's the only judgment that counts in Paul's book. And so he gives an instruction. Based on that, he gives an instruction to the Corinthians in verse 5. Therefore, based on the fact that it is God alone who judges, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes. That's the time he's talking about. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So do not, Paul says, and this would be a word for us, do not pronounce judgment, Paul says. In other words, think about the context. Do not bring faithful ministry and ministers under critical scrutiny. Do not bring faithful ministers and ministry under critical scrutiny. Do not assume their success or their failure. Do not assume and render verdicts in regards to the effectiveness of ministry. When Jesus returns, he will reveal, we're told, things now hidden in darkness. Now, sometimes in the Bible when the word darkness appears, it means evil things. It means evil deeds. I don't think that's what that means here. A lot of what a minister does and a lot of what you do rightly is behind the scenes. It's done in secret, much of it as it should be, behind closed doors. And the fruit of much of what you do, Christian, and much of what you're doing today, the fruit may not be seen for a long time. But the fruit will be seen when Jesus returns. And things that are now hidden in darkness and those purposes or motives of the heart when all of that is revealed. John Calvin says, It is as though he had said, You now, O Corinthians, as if you had the adjudging of the prizes, crown some and send away others with disgrace, but this right and office belong exclusively to Christ. You do that before the time before it has become manifest who is worthy to be crowned, but the Lord has appointed a day on which he will make it manifest. That statement takes its rise from the assurance of a good conscience, which brings us also this advantage, that committing our praises into the hands of God, we disregard the empty breath of human applause. And one more, number four, last heading. The reward of a minister. The reward of a minister. We didn't read the entirety of verse 5 before. So let's read the whole verse now. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, 
before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then, that is on the day of judgment, each one will receive his commendation, or we might say reward, from God. Then each one will receive, Paul says, his commendation from God. I've tried in the sermon to show how these words of Paul apply not only to those in formal ministry, but also those in informal ministry, which would include all of you as Christians. I want to do the same thing with verse 5. But first, let me explain what this means for Paul and those who are in ministry. The Greek word here for commendation means praise or expression of approval, which is an amazing thing because this verse then is talking about this someday praise from God. Not to God. Not praise to God, but praise from God. The Corinthians were praising men now. I follow Paul. I follow Paul. I follow Peter. So Paul is saying here, not now, but then. That last sentence in verse 5. The commendation is not for now on these men. The commendation is then. Then, when the Lord returns, then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see, not boasting in men now, but commendation from God then. That's right. The boasting now in men is wrong. The commendation from God then is right. But second, let me explain what I think this means for all Christians. Paul wrote and knew that he would be judged on the last day. He said, it is the Lord who will judge me. For those of you who aren't Paul, who aren't ministers, isn't the same true for you? You also, Christian, in the end, will be judged by Christ alone upon his return. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10 we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, Paul says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. So this is very important. Christians, you will be judged. 
But the judgment you face will be very different than the judgment a non-believer faces. This is a different sort of judgment. And it's very important for Christians to understand this. Prize, Paul talks about elsewhere. He's after a prize. He says he's after a crown, a reward. The judgment, Christian, that you will face someday is in regards to your faithfulness. It is in regards to your faithfulness. And to the degree that you were faithful with the opportunities that God gave you and the gifts that God gave you and the talents that God gave you, to the degree that you are faithful in those things, you will be commended by God. Rewarded by God. I don't know much else of what that looks like. But commended by God. Praised by God. It's like Matthew 25, 21. You'll hear something like this. Well done. God will say to you, well done. Good and faithful servant. I mean, that's like when you look at your child and you say, I am so proud of you. Kids, you know what that's like to hear? Adults, you remember what that's like to hear? Can you imagine God? I'm proud of you. Well done. Good and faithful servant. God has given you, Christian, opportunities he gives you, he's sovereign, he gives you opportunities that he doesn't give me. He has given you gifts that he has not given me. He's given me talents that he hasn't given you. He's directing your life in ways that he's not directing mine. His providence is working out differently for you than it is for me. And what is God doing? He is giving you a context. He's giving you a platform. He is giving you opportunity in which to be faithful. Will you use the opportunities that God has given you? Will you use the gifts that he has given you? Will you use the talents that he has given you? And will you be faithful? Listen, not successful. It's not about who is the most successful. We're going to be surprised on that day. Because everything was in the darkness. Everything was behind closed doors. Everything was behind the scenes. And the fruit of what this guy did wasn't even seen for centuries later, maybe. But it will all be stacked up and he will be commended by God, not for his success, but because he was faithful. So it's like this. Imagine two containers up in front of the room right now. And they both have two gallons of water in them. But they're totally different sized containers. Now one of those containers is two gallons big. And it's got two gallons of water in it. The other is 30 gallons big. And it has two gallons of water in it. Let's say it has three gallons of water in it. 
You pour that water out, it looks like this has more water than this. This is more successful than this. But this had so much more capacity, so many more opportunities, so much more gifting, so much more talents, and yet 27 gallons wasted. And now here is this two-gallon container. Listen, some of you, you're two gallons. You're a two-gallon container. And some of you, you're 30-gallon containers. You're brilliant. You're smarter than everyone in the room. People love you. People like you. They're attracted to you. They want to follow you. You have opportunities that are off the chart. So here's how it's going to go. Some of your two-gallon containers, I think I'm somewhere around there. You don't have a lot of gifts, maybe. You don't have a lot of talents. You're not that smart. You're not great looking. Don't have many opportunities. But listen, will you be faithful with what God has given you? He's given you the life you have. He's given you the opportunities you have. He's given you the abilities you have. Will you be faithful? And you could be a 30-gallon container, and you could accomplish more than the other guy. But you didn't even come close to faithfulness. You wasted most of your life. Here's the question. Who is going to be commended on that last day when Christ returns? You might think it's going to be this guy, but it's not. It's going to be in regards to faithfulness, not success. So what does he say? So quit worrying about public opinion. Quit worrying about private conscience. Quit comparing your life to someone else's. Quit comparing your spouse to someone else's. Quit comparing yourself to someone else. Quit comparing your kids to someone else's kids. Quit comparing your family to someone else's family. Quit comparing your ministry to someone else's and your opportunity to someone else's opportunity. Shut up. Look at the ministry you have, the opportunities you have, the gifts you have. Stop complaining and get to work being faithful. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. God doesn't need us. He doesn't, that's not what this is about. He uses us for His glory. There's a pretty strong biblical case to be made. That God is glorified most when the weak are faithful. That's what God has called us to do. Young people here, you have many decisions ahead of you. Decisions that you will only make once in your life. You need to be thinking about this right now. How will you be faithful with your life? How will you be faithful to God? How will you serve Him? 
I know some of you have big dreams and big visions and places you want to go and things you want to do, and there's nothing wrong with that. But will you be content with the gifts that God gives you, the talents God gives you, the opportunities God gives you, the family God gives you, the job God gives you, and will you be faithful? At the end of the day, that is what matters. And then finally, and most encouraging of all in this text is what this verse does not say. Here's what I mean by that. This verse does not say to Christians, do not pronounce judgment. The Lord's going to come. He'll bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, that's when we face that judgment, Christian. It does not say then each one will either receive his condemnation or commendation. That is not what the text says. Do you know why? Because that's not the kind of judgment that the Christian is going to face. Condemnation is not even on the table when the Christian goes to stand before Christ on the last day. Because you have already, already been declared Christian righteous in God's eyes through Jesus Christ. For the Christian, there should be no fear of condemnation. It says commendation, not condemnation. Commendation is what's coming. It's just a matter of how much commendation in regards to how faithful you are with what God has given you. But not condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You will never, Christian, hear a word of condemnation from God. You will never hear a word of condemnation. Think about that. Never will we hear a word of condemnation. We don't know what all we will hear on that day, but we know we will not hear a word of condemnation because, Christian, you have already been to court. You have already been declared righteous and released from the courtroom. Never, never to face that judge in that way again. Christ faced him on your behalf. This is the gospel. The gospel that is a comfort to you if you are a Christian. And it is calling to you if you are not a Christian. That is that Jesus came and lived and suffered and died in the place of sinners. So that sinners could be reconciled to God so that sinners could be declared righteous in Christ so, so that sinners could have the, the doors of that courtroom flung open and then pushed out and then the doors nailed shut behind them you've been justified saved rescued redeemed the verdict has already come in. Be encouraged. 
we're without fear of condemnation. We're without fear of public opinion. We're without fear we should be of private conscience. We live our lives with the aim of being found faithful by God on the last day. Those who are faithful for centuries, almost two millennium now, have been every Sunday doing what we do every Sunday, and that is responding to the preaching of God's word by taking communion together. And we do that every Sunday here in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ in remembrance of what he accomplished for us on the cross through his death. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and following. Let me read it again. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're remembering and proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death this morning. You are invited to take communion with us today if you are a baptized believer. In other words, you have confessed your sin. You have placed your trust for salvation in the work of Jesus Christ alone. And if you are part of a local church, whether it's this church or another one, that faithfully preaches the gospel. We'll have leaders up front to serve. Please empty into the center aisle and come forward and then return to your seats from the outside and then wait. We'll take the bread and the juice together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come again to this time where we respond to your word. We're trying now to turn our attention off of the world and off of ourselves and onto the sacrificial death of Jesus. So may you be glorified as we remember his death, as we proclaim the power of his death in our place so that we could be delivered from sin and Satan and death, and ourselves, and even your judgment, God, so that we could be brought into a different sort of judgment where we will receive a commendation from you based on our faithfulness, which we know and remember is only possible through the power and help of your Holy Spirit. So dependent on you and remembering you, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.